Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Wednesday the 30th of August. You can find this podcast on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Substack and Threads. Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page there. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. And it offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo has warned that American companies are beginning to see China as uninvestable. On the third day of her four-day visit to China, she met with Premier Li Chang and called on Beijing to act to reduce the risk of doing business in the country. She told him that American companies were concerned about long-standing issues such as intellectual property theft and state enterprise subsidies to new areas including fines and raids on offices without due process, revisions to counter espionage laws and unclear data and privacy rules. Bloomberg is reporting that China is poised to cut interest rates on trillions of yuan of outstanding home mortgages for the first time since the global financial crisis. Authorities are directing banks to lower homeowners' borrowing costs on some 5.3 trillion US dollars of existing mortgages as soon as today. The reductions will only affect loans on first homes. U.S. labor market data showed that the number of new job openings fell sharply in July, well below analyst forecasts and hitting the lowest level in more than two years. The job quits rate declined to its lowest level in 30 months, an indication that workers are seeing fewer attractive opportunities in the job market. And beleaguered Chinese property developer Country Garden has requested a 40-day grace period for a Minbi bond maturing next week in the latest sign of its liquidity struggles. A meeting to vote on the proposal will be held no later than August the 31st, which is tomorrow, according to a filing through the Shanghai Stock Exchange. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks rallied and Treasury yields dropped on Tuesday as weaker-than-expected economic data persuaded investors that the Federal Reserve will refrain from raising interest rates further. The S&P 500 climbed 1.5% to close at a two-week high of 4,498 and its best day since June the 2nd. The Dow rose for the third straight day, adding 293 points, or 0.9%, to finish the session at 34,853. The Nasdaq Composite gained 1.7% to close at 13,944. Treasury yields sank as cooler economic data suggested that the US labour market may be starting to feel the impact of higher interest rates. Yields on the policy-sensitive two-year U.S. Treasury fell 12 basis points to 4.89%, while yields on the benchmark 10-year note declined 9 basis points to 4.13%, retreating further from the 15-year high touched on August 21st. The U.S. dollar index slipped half a percent below 104 on Tuesday as bond yields retreated. The Chinese yuan gained some momentum amid speculation about Chinese banks lowering mortgage rates. It climbed 0.1% to 7.2796 in onshore markets. 
and Hong Kong stocks extended gains from their prior session, buoyed by supportive policies from Beijing to boost China's capital markets. The Hang Seng Index extended Monday's 1% gain and climbed another 2% or 353 points to a two-week high of 18,484. The Tech Index surged 2.6% and on the mainland stocks gained for a second session. The Shanghai Composites rallied further on Tuesday with the index climbing 1.2% to 3,136. The Shenzhen Composite was the best performing index in Asia on Tuesday, with the index up 2.2% boosted by tech and industrial stocks. Looks like the rally is going to continue this morning. Futures markets pointing to an open of about 160 points higher for the Hang Seng. That's around about 0.9%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests on this Monday mo- on Wednesday morning. We have our regular commentator, capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield, Enzio von Fall. Morning, Enzio. Morning to you. And also with us is Hong Kong-based macro strategist, Patrick Bennett. Welcome back, Patrick. Yes, good morning, Peter. Gina Raimondo, the US Commerce Secretary, has warned that American companies are beginning to see China as uninvestable. On the third day of her four-day visit to China, she met with <laughs> Premier Li Chang and called on Beijing to act to reduce the risk of doing business in the country. She told him that American companies were concerned about long-standing issues such as intellectual property theft and state enterprise subsidies to new areas, including uh, and new areas including fines and raids on offices without due process, revisions to counter espionage laws, and unclear data and privacy rules. She told reporters, increasingly I hear from businesses that China is uninvestable because it's become too risky. And she said, actions speak louder than words, but I hope this becomes a moment where we start to see action. Um, Enzio, do you agree with her? Well, I do. I think that she's actually voicing something that probably a lot of businesses in China themselves are also saying, that the very ideological leadership now is kind of very, as Eshwar Prasad put, of Cornell University put into the New York Times just a couple of days ago, the government is very hostile to the private sector, which does account for, for productivity, for employment, for investment. And so as long as the government remains hostile to the domestic as well as foreign private sector, basically, then China is going to go nowhere in a hurry. And why is China hostile to the private sector? I mean, it denies that it is. If you listen to Premier Li Chang, he says, you know, we're a very business-friendly government. We encourage foreign investment. We want companies to come here. Why is it then that they're certainly perceived as being hostile to private businesses? Well, I mean, my guess is that they just have... It's, it's, I mean, as tried as it sounds, it's, it's a mindset thing. Um, that trickles from the down, from the top down, and then with uh, President Xi also having now basically lifetime leadership powers, um, he can frankly do as he pleases. And so, uh, I'm afraid it's a mindset thing that isn't going to go away very soon. It's 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 part of his hardware. So it's part of the ideological makeup of the Chinese Communist yes. Party, basically. Yeah. 
Mm. Patrick, do you agree? Do you think China's become anti-business, or in terms of private enterprises, look, anyway? Look, I do to uh, to degrees. I think it uh, it speaks to really the you know the, the belligerence, uh, if we can call it that, of uh, of saying you know some opportunities, uh, some external opportunities have been closed off. Uh, and so the focus has turned more internal. Uh, clearly, the halcyon days of, uh, of Chinese growth are, are behind us. Uh, you know, and Chinese leadership now is uh, you know pursuing a path, uh, an ideological path, as uh, as Andrew, you know, correctly and, and yourself point out. Uh, you know, which is uh, perhaps not one which would uh, you know be favoured you know, be favoured by the by the vast majority. So I think they're heading down a path. Uh, which favours the, you know, which, which doesn't favour the private sector, uh, which looks to be dangerous. I, I think that that's dangerous for, for China. I think it's dangerous for the global economy, uh, as well. And if, you know, as we see, uh, you know, Ramondi there, you know, we haven't gone far in the last, uh, you know, it was 2016 in the in the Trump administration when we're talking about intellectual property and mm. the, uh, mm. uh, you know, the forced, uh, you know, the forced assumption of, uh, you know, of patents, uh, etc. And so we we haven't really gone anywhere. Uh, and I think that's a, you know, point, that's a concerning yeah. thing. So is this visit going to help, do you think? Is it going to ch help change anything at all? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's about like a, a carrot or a stick, isn't it? And, uh, you know, there's been a lot more stick in the last, uh, in the last eight years than there has been, uh, has been for some time. And, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, the 99% of products which are, you know, not concerned with national security, or, you know, et cetera, I think maybe a bit of a stretch. Uh, you know, I, I, I go back to this, this idea of the degrees of belligerence, and I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not convinced it's going to make a, an immediate difference uh, in, in any uh, way, shape or form. What do you make of, of, of the political environment, NGO? Because this is definitely an issue as well, isn't it? The US political environment has turned very much against China. We've got an election coming up um, next mm. year. Is that going to make it hard to achieve any breakthroughs in terms of improvements in, in relations between the two countries? Totally. Having lived in America many years and done a little bit of this on the Hill, it's just, it's, 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 we, we accuse Xi of being ideological, but the Americans are no less ideological because for them, all Chinese are bad people because they're basically all commies. And so until you get rid of this ridiculous mindset that they're all bad people, you're going to find all the politicians in America having to bleat like sheep that they are anti-China. Now, what happens backstage, Ramondo, etc., that's something very different, but you can't keep on punching the Chinese in the nose and then expect them to come back for more and then hope them to be very cooperative. It just doesn't work that way. There's no Japanese saying the blind are not scared of snakes. And I'm afraid the U.S. politicians in this constant, incessant anti-China mantra of theirs are playing with fire. So who's going to win out um, in, in the end? Because this is, is, is almost like a game of poker, isn't it? Well, yes, look, I think you know, at the moment uh, the house wins. You know, everyone, all, all the players are losing at the moment. Mm. You know, global growth is, uh, is challenged by the fact of, uh, of higher you know, policy rates around the world. China's not able to, to, because of that, China's not able to export its way to prosperity or to import the goods uh, you know, necessary to build infrastructure, uh, again, to, uh, you know, to raise, you know, to lift all boats. So, uh, you know, we face a, a very a different situation than we saw perhaps back in, you know, to draw an analogy back in post-2008-9 when China was able to uh, you know, build infrastructure and, and export, and, and now we don't have that because of these higher rates. So I think in the, in the near term, uh, and I believe this is going to be a you know a, a continued weight uh, on global growth, uh, you know, just as the higher you know just as higher global policy rates are. Can China's uh, yeah, it's 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 telling what Patrick was saying that China's 
inflation contracted on an annual basis by 0.3% in July, whether it's 0.3 or 0.62375, doesn't matter. It's just it is going down because of this lacking consumer confidence. And so how he's going to create common prosperity off that, against that backdrop, I don't know. Mm. Where do businesses themselves fit into this? Because they're not on the same page as mm. the politicians, are they? They no. want more dialogue. They want more discussions. Uh, they want to engage with, with China. And, you know, you've got some big companies, American companies operating in China, like Apple, like like Tesla. These, these don't seem to be on the same page as their government. No, and they don't seem to be um, listened to a great deal by these ble- bleating politicians. Um, but at the same time, it's the businesses who are financing the bleating politicians' campaigns. So I think the Chinese are quite adept at, at playing off one side against the other, the administration against the politicians. Curiously, cockeyed as it sounds, siding with U.S. businesses. It does not mean that the Chinese are all good and the Americans are all bad. It does not mean that at all. The Chinese have been cheating. We know that. But I think that the business community needs to make itself heard a little bit more to bring some reason back to the table. Mm. Do, do, do you think, Patrick, that the businesses in, in the, that are operating already in China, despite um, their frustrations at being able to, to do business, um, they certainly want to keep engaging with China, don't they, and, and carry on talking and not pull out? Oh, look, absolutely. Uh, look, I, I, look, I see a little bit of this at Ramondi's visit. Is, uh, you know, look, we've heard so much in the last year or two about the South China Sea, about uh, you know, the islands, mm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. There seems to be a bit of an attack back towards you know the Trump administration. You know the focus on the intellectual intellectual property, etc. And I, I, you know, I, I posit perhaps this is uh, you know some of the uh, lobbying of businesses and saying, well, look, you know these uh, these geopolitical these tensions are not helping us to do business, and we have to talk about business rather than you know, rather than talk about uh, you know these territorial uh, type disputes. So, yeah, I see it as a bit of a walk back towards where Trump yeah. the Trump administration was. Uh, and I don't think that is uh, in coincidental with uh, with an election next year. Mm. And at the same time, of course, China's got to do something to try and boost its economy. So the the mm. latest report, which came from Bloomberg yesterday, is that China's going to cut interest rates on trillions mm. of dollar of yuan of outstanding home mortgages. That will be the first time they've been cut since the global financial crisis. Apparently, they're directing banks to lower borrowing costs on something like 5.3 trillion dollars of existing mortgages. For first homes and also at the same time lenders uh, are going to be asked to cut deposit rates which will be for the third time um, this year this is all Enzio, part of a drive i think isn't it to try and get consumers to spend that's what uh, they want to do but it, is this going to work misdirected because again until they allow the private sector to get going again it's obviously my von hayek training but until they allow the private sector to get going again nothing is going to be of use. It's a little bit like telling an alcoholic to eat more cucumbers to stop drinking. It's, it's just it doesn't, it doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I absolutely agree. And I, you know, I go back to something we've talked about on this, uh, on this program before about the, uh, you know, the loans and lending data we saw earlier this year. Uh, and it, that showed uh, that there's you know, a propensity to repay mortgages when the rates go down. Uh, mm. So it's not, in fact, boosting consumption. It's just you know putting money, you know, paying money back because people are concerned about the about the property developers, about the property sector. So 
yeah, I don't see this as a as a as as a as a good solution. So, what what would be the solution? I mean, the other thing they've tried is cutting, you know, stamp duty on stocks as well to try and get people to invest in the market more. That doesn't seem to be working either, does it? All, all the attempts that they're making to try and boost them, they're almost like trying to order the market to go back up at the moment, but it's well, not working. No, that's right. Uh, you know, what is the solution? <laughs> What's yeah, that's the uh, you know the sixty four trillion yuan <laughs> question, if, if you like. Look, I think it's part. Part of a, you know, part of the packages, I think, uh, you know, deregulation, this, uh, you know, this encouragement is, you know, in fact, looking for direct encouragement of the private sector rather than this, this, so, this so much, um, uh, you know, under underground uh, support for the for mm-hmm. the public sector. So I think there needs to be a, you know, a conscious uh, and clear shift in that. Also, I think one needs to add also on the back of what Patrick was saying that the savings in China are rising. Because mm-hmm. people are so jittery about their income security, and it's all about income security and economics. I mean, economics comes from housekeeping, not Betty Crocker's or Hazel's, but, but it is housekeeping at the end of the day. And if you don't have enough shekels in, in the pouch, well, then you're not going to spend. Mm. And uh, but then if you look at the, the the latest news from the housing market, it's pretty dire, isn't it? Country Garden looking to delay uh, repayment of a yuan bond. We've had Evergrande. St- um, uh, start trading again in Hong Kong and its shares have plummeted about nine, 90% mm. since it started uh, trading again. It doesn't look like the, the, the problems in the property sector are going away, which in turn must be worrying Chinese consumers. Well, it, it is, uh, you know, quite absolutely. Uh, you know, we thought perhaps a couple of years or 18 months or so ago that um, you know, things were being addressed. That's clearly not the case. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, you know, lower interest rates uh, is not going to encourage people to spend. They're going to save more, even though the rate is less, because they fear that rates are going to go even lower. Mm. Uh, so it's this, it's this vicious, mm. uh, the vicious circle. But you know, certainly the property sector has been, uh, you know, over, uh, you know, overcooked. It has been uh, had far too great influence on the uh, on the uh, on the size of the economy and the activity in the economy for a long time. And to get that into correction, we're going to have to face some, you know, some more pain than we're seeing, mm. more pain than we're seeing now. There's got to be a deleveraging, hasn't there? That's that's the only way out of it. The only question is, is oh. it like a long, slow, painful deleveraging like we saw in Japan, or does it get done much quicker and the pain is going to be sharper, but maybe it'll be over um, quicker? I feel it'd be a little bit quicker. I mean, we're seeing the deleveraging in the you know in the sector through the companies, um, mm-hmm. which is something unusual, uh, you know, in in China, the way that the companies uh, have dominated the have dominated the sector and dominated the finance uh, component in the sector, and so that's really coming home to roost now. So, uh, my belief is that we will be a, a you know, considerably faster workout than Japan, but of course, every, almost everywhere yeah. is. <laughs> I'm a little bit less sanguine than my esteemed colleague here because I just think that there's a Jap- Japanification going on with wages in China falling. They're actually picking up a little bit in, in Japan. Um, but I, th- I think it's going to be a long slog, and the government's going to have to step in um, just to, to deleverage at these ma- these egregious amounts of, of overborrowing. Even that's not going to that's going to drop on a hot stone. Well, when you say the government's got to step in, mm. presumably the only thing they can do in in a situation like this, where there's massive leverage, and you know Evergrande has no hope, does it, of ever paying back uh, that, all that debt that it owes? Uh, probably not, neither does Country Garden. You've no. just got to let them go under. Isn't that the only way? Isn't isn't that all the government can do? And just encourage you know a proper liquidation process of these companies, a proper bankruptcy process for them. Yeah, look, I think that is the uh, that that is the path that will be followed, and it's almost like a, 
not a nationalisation, but a, you know, certainly a, a taking over. So it's a it's a long step backwards from uh, from where we were about uh, mm. you know owning property is good and you know, people should be encouraged to you know to buy property and that's going to help you know people's uh, general wealth and and, and general uh, you know, making a prosperous yeah. society and so we're taking a, lot, a large step back from that mm. uh, and I don't see a uh, I don't see another uh, you know credible solution in the in the near term. Why does the government, it seems rather impotent at the moment, doesn't it? It's almost looking like it's scrambling around for a solution, what to do, but it's also got these constraints that come from the very top, which are sort of ideological constraints, which rule out certain options um, as well. So the result is it sort of looks like it it appears from afar that really it's all talk, but nothing's being done. Yeah, it's, 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 I don't think they are scrambling for a solution. I think they're acting as if they are. They're acting as if they're speaking with the private sector. But I'm afraid that the, the ideological bent is so strong that that will pervade everything else from the head to the toe, from, the, from, the, from Beijing down to the local level. And that's where, that's where I, I, I think Patrick would agree, that's where the danger is. Yeah, look, I, I just don't see. Yeah, I don't see a, a good solution, um, mm. you know, on the table at the moment. And uh, you know, even though we see in markets uh, of late uh, some, uh, you know, some encouragement or, or some uh, desire to, uh, you know, to, to write in or, or mark in the bottom of, uh, you know, things, I, uh, I'm not so sanguine. I'm, no. I'm, I'm not anywhere near as, yeah, uh, yeah. As, as sanguine as those responses. I, I think that we face, uh, you know, incredible challenges uh, going forward. Agreed. Well, let's turn our attention to the U.S. because we've had uh, some important data um, out overnight. First of all, the U.S. labor market data showed that the number of new job openings fell sharply in July, well below analyst forecasts. It hit the lowest level in more than two years, and the job quits rate declined to its lowest level in 30 months, which is an indication that workers are seeing fewer attractive opportunities uh, in the jobs market, and also U.S. consumer confidence has also deteriorated. The Conference Board uh, Consumer Confidence Index fell well below expectations to 106.1. Uh, that was down from 114 uh, in July. Both the present situations index and the expecti- expectations index fell. I suspect, Patrick, the Fed will be pleased to see this, won't it? Oh, look, absolutely. I think the Fed will be encouraged by this. Uh, I'm not sure they'll be quite as encouraged as the mar- as the market is. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, the, the market has been itself, yeah. the market has you know, been trying to get ahead of itself for uh, you know for, well since uh, <coughs> you know, since the uh, normalisation and tightening cycle began. Uh, you know, if we look at the job, you know, the job quits and the job openings, uh, the gross numbers are actually still quite strong. I think it's something like 5.8 million new jobs mm-hmm. or, or moves into mm-hmm. new jobs and 5.5 million quits, and which makes it kind of uh, you know, a little bit sobering when we look towards uh, non-farm payrolls on, on Friday and, and try and glean whether it's 185,000 or 195,000 mm-hmm. when we have you know, 5 million people leaving and 5 million people joining new well, jobs. Yeah. So, look, I think absolutely uh, the, the Fed will be encouraged. One of the labour mobility, one of the drivers of labour mobility uh, for the last 12 months has been that workers have been have seen that been able to, to achieve higher wages by moving. Mm. Uh, if we're seeing some flattening off in that, then, then certainly that's something for the, the Fed to be encouraged about. Uh, my position, uh, my belief is that the Fed is not done with its work uh, yet. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the rates, I, I think I, I agree, I mean, the, the yield curve is getting ever more inverted. The um, six-month money is at about 59 call it 6%. 
and the bond is at about four something, the, the two and the five, mm-hmm. the two and the ten. So um, that's not good. And also, at some point, these rates, if they keep on, if the, the if the rates remain high and inflation gets stuck, which I think is a kind of a stagflation with slowing growth, well, then why are you really buying stocks with the earnings outlook just as from a macro perspective? cannot be all that rosy mm. and what's interesting is the real yield isn't it on inflation protected mm. securities above two percent now that yeah. starts to put i think a, a challenge to, to stocks doesn't it when you start seeing that sort of real yield oh look it must do uh you know it's starting to and that's what i say i think there's uh, you know little bounces off the you know off interim lows uh, i don't think are going to be sustained uh, i think uh, from a, a, a broader perspective i think the market is still coming to grips with the idea that the way that inflation is tamed is by softening growth is by softening demand uh, not just by raising interest rates it's a path that has to follow uh, beyond that which is consumers have to stop spending because the interest rates mm. have become so attractive that they're going to be saving rather than, rather than spending and we're not seeing that at, we're not seeing that at the moment so i, I think this I, this idea that the fed may be at an end or you know now you know, moving ahead to look at you know, to look at when they may cut rates again, I think is, is still premature. Very premature. So you think um, how, how many more rates rises do you think there, there could be here? I mean, the market says maybe one more and then a pause, and uh, the market's now starting wow. to say maybe quite a long pause. But yeah. yeah, look, I think the numbers last night. Um, you know, if we if we were to consider those numbers, you know, the the jolt the the, the job. Uh, you know, quits and ads uh, were sort of very second, almost third tier for uh, you know for some time. I think the market is just ahead of itself, mm-hmm. trying to look at these. I think we need a lot more, a lot more numbers, a lot more uh, you know real uh, top tier numbers to come before we can make a decision on uh, you know on how many more to go. But I would say at least one, uh, possibly two, that I see uh, at the moment. Yeah, I've been feeling for two years that they would be closer to six than anything else. And I think that's that's where they're going to end up because the consumer companies themselves, the large ones, the Nessies, etc., a lot of them went into commodity price contracts where they that were long-term, so they can't just sort of cut rates because mm. their prices of, I don't know, I'm making this up a little bit, cocoa and water and I don't know what, um, are, they've, they've, they've gone into long-term high-priced contracts. And so that's going at least into next year. And, and what did you make of Jerome Powell's speech last week at Jackson Hole? Much, much weighted uh, speech, but uh, did it say anything new that we, that we weren't really aware of before? Not to, not to my view. No, I don't think to the market's view either. No, no. Uh, I saw um, you know, someone use the golf analogy. He's a good golfer, and he, he just he hit it down the middle. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, you know that uh, we'll, you know, we'll wait and see. But uh, but that inflation was still too high. So I think that was the you know the warning that um, the minority of the market expected. The, you know, a lot of the majority is still there, are still expecting yeah. this uh, this victory to be to be declared. And, and that's what mm. as we've been saying yeah, yeah. A, a few times this morning. Uh, I don't believe that we're at that yeah. point yet. It's not going to be like that anyway, is it? The Fed isn't suddenly going to ring a bell and say, we're done, we're, we're here, we've, we've reached to the, make, make the level. Too many mistakes in the past. Yeah. So yeah. they don't yeah. want to continue that. Yeah. They know how to beat inflation. You, know, you beat inflation by raising interest rates and you, and you raise them and you keep raising them and you raise them at a, a fast enough pace to achieve the goal that you want, which is to you know, reduce consumer activity uh, in order that uh, you know, you know, inflation prices uh, come down. And we're not at that point yet. So what, putting it all together, what does it mean for markets? First of all, you 
US markets. We've got now the uh, the 10-year Treasury bond yield firmly above 4%. So although it did decline mm-hmm. overnight on this data, it's still now, it seems that 4% is now the floor, isn't it? It's no longer a ceiling uh, for, for those bond yields. And we're back to sort of the sort of levels we used to see quite regularly before the global financial crisis. Yeah, look, I, I, bond yields, uh, term bond yields uh, are still too low. Uh, there's still too much mm. liquidity uh, in, yes, in, in the system. Absolutely. Uh, so term yields are, are still too low. If we consider real GDP plus inflation expectations and a risk premium, you know, then we cannot validate a you know four percent ten year yield. It needs to be needs to be higher. Uh, front end rates are going to continue to be firm. Uh, that y- y- reversal of the uh, re- reversal of the inversion of the yield curve uh, will happen over time. Uh, but I don't think we're at that point just yet. But yeah, I think four percent is the floor, not the is the floor uh, now for the tens. I think the economic time is still in excess, uh, crazy as it sounds, an excess supply of money. The financial conditions index of the St. Louis Fed, I think, is still pretty loose, which is pretty amazing because they actually began tightening properly only in, in April of this year, as far as I recall. There was a withdrawing money from the system. And the excess demand for goods is still pretty pronounced. Otherwise, why would the why would the Fed keep on raising rates? So, but I I, I continue my braying of, of the past year that at some point the, the chickens will come home to roost because at some point the higher rates do have to bite, and then of course chaos always comes from the corners that you least expect. There must be getting to the point now where bonds are an attractive alternative to stocks, isn't it? When you've got rates at this at this sort of levels, you've got forward uh, PE on the S&P 500 at about 19 times when historically it's been below 16. Um, surely now stocks are going to start putting pressure on US valuations. Look, look, that must do. Look, I agree. I, I think that uh, you know, bonds have to be an increasingly uh, significant part of, uh, of portfolios. Uh, I think that's going to continue uh, for some time from here. And tell me about local markets. I mean, this has been a pretty dire year, hasn't it, for, uh, for Chinese markets? It seems like no rally can really um, hold at the moment. Um, and, and we're sort of, you know, we're at nine month lows now for the Shanghai Composite or, or close to that, similar for the, the Hang Seng, the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, the worst performing index in the world so far this year. Where do we go from here? Yeah, unfortunately, not too far. Yeah. Not, not, not too far. Um, Look, I think for Hong Kong, uh, you know, particularly uh, the strength of the U.S. dollar and the uh, the, the fact that the uh, the currency here is a, a currency board uh, has counted against the uh, has counted against the local market, as has the uh, the Chinese influence. Uh, as we spoke earlier, uh, we see challenges. Uh, I certainly see challenges, and Joe, uh, I think mm. we see challenges ahead. So. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a uh, you know a stock picking rather than an index uh, an index story. I think for some. Yeah, time. it's not an asset allocator's choice. The, the the Greater China story, because I think Japan is more interesting. Indonesia might be more interesting. Um, so I think those are, but very selective because the global economic time is not hard either. We just passed some trade um, births out in in Kuantong somewhere, and my word, the. Um, Empty, empty, empty. You no know, global slowdown global trade also coming. So how you make money off a slowing economy beats me. Are you encouraged at all by the fact that Chinese stocks are now close to their lowest level versus their U.S. peers since two thousand and one? Not especially. Um, look, I feel that. Um, 
one of the influences on the uh, on the Chinese market has been the uh, the lack of international investor uh, participation. Uh, it was a real uh, strength of the market for a couple of years. It was a uh, a, a contributor to the uh, appreciation of the of the currency. Uh, mm-hmm. But without that, uh, you know, without that cornerstone, without that portfolio inflow. Uh, because investors have uh, have raised their uh, you know their risk premium or their their required risk premium to uh, to invest here, uh, we're not going to see a turn uh, turn sometime soon. You know, obviously, things do get do get cheaper if we see the currency weaken further, and I believe we will. Then things start to get a little more attractive. It's like as NJ was mentioned, Japan is an interesting story because of its currency, because of the currency mm. valuation of getting in. But uh, but domestically uh, and, and China, no, I, I think that until we see portfolio return. Uh, then I think the market is going to underperform. I think we've got such structural changes also coming through with the globalization, AI, I actually call it absolutely incompetent, not artificial intelligence, but that's probably my problem. Um, but I think that the um, that the structural changes are going to take their toll, and as we all know, the trend is, my friend, it's fine, all of us talking about cycles, but actually it's the trend is where the action is, and that's, in my mind, down for quite deflationary for quite some time. Well, thank you both very much. Really great to hear your thoughts this morning. You heard their capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield, Enzio von Fahl, and Hong Kong-based macro strategist, Patrick Bennett. I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. Good morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, at Jackson Hole last week, uh, we heard from Jerome Powell talking about the potential path of U.S. interest rates. Christine Lagarde was there as well, talking about uh, Eurozone interest rates. But we shouldn't forget that also Bank of Japan Governor Keizo Ueda was there. Um, didn't hear an awful lot about what he said. So can you fill us in? What exactly did he say at Jackson Hole? Yes, I think in the case of Japan, there were some different views. Um, compared to the US and the Eurozone. Um, for example, I think that the issue of the inflation is uh, still a, a topic of discussion in Japan, particularly as regards the sustainability of the inflation that we're seeing at the moment. Um, there are still concerns about um, whether the current level that we see is, is really sustainable in Japan. And I think that, you know, this really underscores the the message um, that was provided that, you know, the accommodative monetary policy stance in Japan is still um, preferred at this point in time. I mean, it was stark contrast, as you say, wasn't it, to what Jerome Powell was saying, who was making it very clear that all inflation, although inflation has come down, it is still way too high. Um, and the Fed is ready, if necessary, to go and raise interest rates th- further. No such talk whatsoever from, uh, from the Bank of Japan. They're, they're almost sort of begging for more inflation. That's right. I think, um, you know, Inflation is continuing its downward path in the case of the U.S., but there's still a tightening bias in terms of monetary policy. Um, whilst uh, in the case of the euro area, I think inflation is more of a concern. It's still at above 5, 5%, um, and there are concerns there as regards um, what can be done on the monetary policy side, because this is only one of the tools available, of course, um, in, in, the large, in the broader suite of um, options that would be available. Um, the central bank, of course, can only look at monetary policy. And, you know, there are, I think there are comments made by Lagarde there needs a more comprehensive um, effort at the, at the policy level to address inflation. In the case of Japan, 
um, underlying inflation was pointed as um, one of the concerns um, that's essentially justifying the continuation of the rather accommodative stance relatively um, compared to the other major central banks. Um, and I think that, you know, the comments made by Ueda were largely um, not unexpected, I would say. I think that we are well aware that um, the issue of wage inflation and developments in nominal wage negotiations are key to what will happen um, as regards any shift in monetary policy in Japan. And at the moment, of course, um, we don't see anything really um, coming out of the, the, the wage uh, situation uh, that would warrant any shift in monetary policy. I mean, when he talks about underlying inflation, that, that rate is still well above the Bank of Japan's target, isn't it? The reason for this inflation is really still coming from the external side, coming from cost push factors rather than domestic demand. And, you know, unless this um, inflation was to be driven by domestic demand in a sustainable way, um, that would be the, the trigger which would um, allow for some uh, shift in the monetary policy stance. How much is he coming under pressure from the markets? Because as long as he keeps this stance, the, the Japanese yen continues uh, to weaken. It, it got to the lowest level of the year overnight, although it did rebound because the US dollar started to weaken following uh, the US economic data. But nevertheless, um, th is this putting pressure on him in terms of how long he can maintain this monetary policy and yield control policy? Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult uh, question, I think, for the central bank. I think that, um, as you said, the yen has continued its uh, depreciation over the past a couple of months at the level of 146 to the dollar. Um, this, of course, leads to imported inflation. But let's look at what the reason is behind this uh, level of yen weakness. And it hasn't changed for since I began talking to you about this issue over a year ago. So we have uh, this spread between uh, U.S. and Japanese interest rates, which is still prevalent. Um, now, in order to address the halt in the yen, of course, there would need to be some narrowing in that spread. And there are two ways that that could happen. One is that the U.S. could uh, stop in increasing interest rates or in indeed reduce its interest rates. The other way would be for the Bank of Japan to increase interest rates. Um, and, you know, we don't see that happening in the near future. So I think it creates a problem for the Bank of Japan when it's considering its um, decisions on monetary policy normalization. And, you know, as I said earlier, one of the factors that will drive that decision will be whether we see sustainable uh, pickup in domestic demand driven by uh, nominal wages that would outstrip the level of inflation that we see at the moment. And is there any sign of um, Japanese investors repatriating back to Japan? Well, at the moment, we, we don't see that because, you know, the, the yen is continuing its depreciating trend. In a scenario where, um, you know, tighter monetary policy conditions would be prevalent in Japan, we, we, we of course, would see some repatriation as a result of that. Um, but, you know, the outlook is still a bit uncertain in that regard at the moment, I would say. And what about, um, what did you make of Jerome Powell's uh, speech. I mean, did he say anything that we weren't already aware of in terms of where U.S. interest rates may be going? Well, I think that one of the points made was that um, there is, you know, very much um, a high level of resilience in the domestic demand in the U.S. 
I think that there's still some work to do on inflation. Um, it's currently at a level of 3.3% year on year, so it's still some way off the 2% target. But I think that, um, you know, whilst domestic demand is is keeping the economy strong in the US, there's still a lot of work to do um, to really um, beat inflation. So I think um, whilst there may not be a rise at the next meeting, we still we still observe some uh, tightening um, bias in US monetary policy. So we probably will expect um, another rate hike uh, before the end of the year. We, we did we did get data overnight, didn't we, on the on the jobs market, the JOLT survey, which suggested that maybe these interest rate rises are starting to take their toll um, on the jobs market. The number of openings dropped. Uh, the number of quits dropped as well, suggesting that people are less confident about getting a new um, a new job. Presumably, this could be key, couldn't it, to the the future path of interest rates? Because the Fed has been watching the labour market very closely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the Fed is closely watching uh, wage data coming out of the US, and I think that this will be one of the important factors taken into account when it looks at. Um, whether interest rate rises would be um, appropriate. Um, of course, it's looking at the inflation target primarily, but you know, it, it's not the purpose of monetary policy to, to trigger some sort of a you know, sharp downturn. So I think all of the data will need to be assessed in, in a balanced manner in, in uh, coming to a decision on what to do. But we have got more data coming out this week. So there could be um, things could presumably change quite quickly, couldn't they? We could see a sudden pickup in inflation. We've got the PCE data coming out. We've got GDP data, the jobs data on Friday. Um, a lot of things that could change the picture very quickly. That's right. I think, you know, but let's remember that the rate of inflation is still going to be around 3%, which is still above the, the target of, of 2%. So I think that that fact will will remain. Um, so it's really a decision for the Fed on whether it can um, squeeze another rate hike um, to to address the inflationary problem without triggering some uh, downfall um, or downturn in the economy over the over the next few months. And that was the other thing that was significant about what he said, wasn't it? That that uh, inflation target of 2% is not going to change. And there has been calls before Jackson Hole from some quite prominent economists um, that this 2 2% target was a bit out of date and needed to be revised, maybe to 2 to 3%. But he seemed to firmly rule that out. Yes, I think that, you know, there are problems with, with that in terms of, you know, having a uh, clearly communicated uh, policy on what the target is. There, there are some talks around having a, a target range as opposed to a points target. Um, but again, I think, you know, there are, there are pros and cons associated with that. I think that it's, it, uh, it's a more difficult proposition for, for central bank communication to markets. I think what we've learned in the last couple of years is that perhaps the, you know, the, the natural rate of interest is a little bit higher than we would have thought. Um, but I think in order to change the target, it would need to be done in a, in a coordinated manner across different central banks. And, you know, across the world, the 2%, the magic 2% is is something that is agreed upon across all central banks. So it's a very uh, clear mechanism for communication. So um, I think that if one central bank changed it and, and then one other leading central bank didn't, then, then it would create some problems, perhaps. And how much is China 
um, an impact here, particularly on what's going on in Japan, because there um, the economy is slipping into deflation. The, uh, there's all sorts of rumours about cuts to mortgage rates uh, going on today, but generally the the trend there is to is to lower um, rates. The Chinese economy seems to be slowing quite fast. What sort of impact is that having on Japan? Yeah, of course. You know, not only Japan, but all trading partners with China are suffering in terms of uh, lower exports to china as a result of the the downturn there so it's um it's one of the factors that is being closely monitored by by policymakers in the region um i think you know export figures and and unemployment figures for japan recently may have been affected by developments in china um, so it's certainly a consideration. Um, you know, the outlook is very much different than what we expected at the start of the year for China. Of course, China was expected to be the growth engine, not only for Asia, but also for the global economy. So it's a really sharp turn um, in, in the outlook for, for China. And it's certainly having ramifications at the regional and the global level. Um, Gina Raimondo, the U.S. Commerce Secretary, is in China at the moment with a four-day visit. She said yesterday China is becoming uninvestable for um, for American companies, or that was certainly the perception of a large number of um, of American companies. Um, what, what do you make of those comments? Yeah, I mean, relations between the U.S. and China are obviously um, a little bit difficult given the, the sanctions that are in place and, you know, the fragmentation that's resulting from that. So I think that, you know, anything that can be done to um, smoothen relations will also will obviously be of, of benefit um, for not only the two economies in question, but also for trading partners of those economies. So I think that um, we can be hopeful for some positive outcome from those discussions. John, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Peter. That's John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Kenny Wynn, Head of Investment Strategy at KGI Asia. And with a view from South Korea is Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk 